This is CliffCentral.com. Good morning and welcome to Disrupt with um, Bumin Tlapo, powered by T-Systems South Africa, who are our sponsors on the show. Thank you for, for joining us um, on another episode of the show where we really invite guests to join us to have conversations about uh, disruption, emerging technologies, uh, trends and things that are really shaping the future of our country, of our continent and the world at large. And someone who's very adept at doing that um, is Bronwyn. Bronwyn joins me. She's a trend analyst. She describes herself as a strategic marketer, a trend analyst, and someone with a special talent for seeing the wood for the trees and the trees in the wood. Bronwyn Williams, thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. How are you doing today? Um, Almost well, thanks. (laughs) Almost well. (laughs) Yes. Um, you know, before we started with the show, I asked you the question of um, why did you agree to see us? And you said it's because you enjoy sharing what's happening in the world um, and how things are evolving with people. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit about what you do at Flux Trends, uh, what the company does, and specifically your role within the organization? Okay, Flux Trends to start with. We are a train analysis agency. But what we do is we look at trends as business strategy. So we look at trends that are happening maybe five minutes ahead of the curve, as we like to speak, excuse our jargon and our business. Um, So we look at things that are going to be impacting on businesses within the next five months to a year sort of period. And we then translate those trends into actionable actionable business strategy for our clients. So we say, this is what's happening in the world. This is what you should be concerned about. These are the opportunities you're missing out on. And this is what you can do to take advantage of those. Okay. And I know you work, uh, the company was founded uh, and owned by Dion Chang. That's correct. Um, and he focuses, you said, a lot on uh, the consumer trends in the business. Besides obviously running the company and setting the strategy. And your yes. focus is specifically around the financial services um, which other areas do you focus on within the business? Okay, so I've, I've really been brought into the Flux Trends team to look at financial and economic trends. Okay. So I have a bit of a background working on the marketing side of the financial industry. But because of my background as a marketer, I also contribute to marketing-related trends for Dion as well. Okay. So let's talk about trend analysis. Um, it sounds fancy, but it also doesn't sound like a lot, if you get what I mean. Yeah. I mean, so maybe... Talk to me. What, what do we do as trend analysts? What is the work of a trend analyst, really? Okay, there's often a misconception that trend analysts predict the future. We okay. don't. It's actually exactly the opposite. Okay, so you don't predict? No, we don't predict. Okay. We just tell you what is happening and why you should be concerned about it and what you should do about it. So our job is to be interested in everything and to be interested enough to know enough depth about a little bit about everything to add value to whatever business that we consult to. Okay. And how do you do that? Well, we do that by having a lot of hands on the ground. We've got people uh, in Seattle. Dion's got some people placed there. He's got contacts within many, many different industries and many different places. And all those people bring a little bit of expertise to the table. What we then do at the Flux Trends core team is we look at those insights and see how to connect the dots. We pull the threads, we go down the rabbit holes, and we see what's happening in a lot of different places. And that's what exactly what a trend is to say, this is happening here, it's happening here, it's happening there. That means this could be something big. It could be a shift. It's not just something interesting. It's actually a big enough change that could disrupt a potential industry. I see. Okay. So, but then what, what are these people doing? Are they gathering anecdotal uh, evidence? Are they kind of going about their lives and witnessing things as they happen? Is it very statistical type of research? What kind of work gets done? 
Well, the observational stuff is where it starts. So we'll find something that's interesting. We'll see something that might be commented on on a, on a variety of different social platforms that might be picked up in a couple of different niche publications across the world. Okay. And then what we do is we go look for the research. We go look for the hard data to see is this something that some that uh, the scientific or academic community has started looking at. And if we do, then we find that that research and we try to pull out the things that are interesting. So we provide just the information that's useful to the reader. We're trying to cut out cut out the fluff and go right to the core. So we're really curators of information. Okay. So what we'll do there. And if there is no statistical data, we might actually go out and commission some of our own. So some of our clients actually bring us on to conduct research into a topic that there simply is not enough of existing in the world at present. So what we do is we take all the information out there. We look for the observations that can be tied together into something tangible that could be useful to a business. Okay. And then we curate that down to just the core. So we don't waste people's time with reams and reams of information. Information. If you read our work, if you read our research, attend our presentations, they're just packed with insights. They're not packed with stories and, and fluff. Yeah. And that's yeah. what you can expect from Flux. Okay. So then give me, give me uh, an example. So can you point me to something which started off as an observation and then was then identified to be a trend, I guess, and which then played itself out over time, just so that I can have better context to to what you've described in terms of the business. Okay, well, then maybe it would be interesting to talk a bit about the retail industry. Yeah. In 2011, we started doing research into how the retail industry was shifting. And, we, and our message at that point in time was that retailers needed to be omni-channel. They needed to have a presence online and offline. Okay. We started to see that at that point in time, you either had an online retailer like your Amazon or your eBay, okay. or you had an offline retailer like your Pick and Pay or your Woolworths, for yeah. example. And we were saying, no, they're not actually two separate things. We're starting to see that they are blurring of those boundaries and that retail is just retail. If you're selling a product, you should be able to sell it throughout all the verticals. It should be available yes. to me as a consumer wherever. Yes, and at that time in 2011, which was not that very long ago, um, people found that to be quite challenging. They said, but how do we do this? You know, this is far too complicated, and no, I'm never going to be able to get that done. And a lot of people didn't listen to that sort of advice that we were bringing to the table, which brings us fast-forwarding to today, yes. and we're seeing what, what people are terming like the, the retail apocalypse, the retail Armageddon, with stores shutting down at record rates. Absolutely, and we've seen, and seen that here in South Africa yes, as well. Yes, the demise yes. of Stutterfords. Yep. We're looking in America where your, where your heritage retail retail brands are just closing down stores. Wow. Their websites dedicated to like hit lists of, of traditional retailers just have been unable to make the shift. And at the same time, you're seeing your big guys like Amazon now branching into physical retail. Absolutely, yes. They're buying up yes. interesting brands. Yeah, I think they bought like a Yes, company and yes. a few other companies like Bobby that, yeah. Parker story yeah, and all that. that's it, yeah. So we're really seeing like that's come to fruition. So that's about how far ahead we look, and that's the sort of services we can provide because we're saying we've seen this, it's happening. It's not happening here in South Africa. At that point in time, our data was so expensive and so limited and mm. the penetration just wasn't there. But if you had been able to internalize those insights and actually apply them to your business, you would have been far ahead of the trend and you would not be the sort of businesses that are facing Massive shutdowns at this point in time. Okay, I see. And so, w what then would give credence so if I'm working for Flux and I'm based in uh, in Mali, for example, on the continent, and I'm observing something um, um, on the ground? Um, the process by which um, that information gets distilled back into the company and then becomes something worth 
you know, pursuing further, how, how does that connection get made? Well, if someone in our network has seen something that they think is interesting, that has legs, that could develop into something that could really impact on businesses' profitability, they would typically get in touch with, with Dion and the Flux Court team and present that in the form of what we call an observation, which you can read on our website. We have okay. a lot of articles written by our network on, on our website, and okay. they basically cover the what's going on, why I think it's important, and who are who are the pioneers and where are the global hotspots? So the whole point is it's not really a train for us unless it's happening in more than one place and okay. impacting on more than one person. Okay. So that that's the difference between being an interesting observation and being something that is facilitating a change in an industry. I see. I and see. then from there, depending on the sort of interest and reaction we get from our our client database, we then would explore deeper research into that in the form of either a retail or either a report dedicated to that industry or our presentations. So we host open sessions throughout the course of the year. We do them three to four times a year in both Joburg and Cape Town, and people can come along to those things to learn about our research into any particular topic. I see. And um, you mentioned to me earlier that, you know, you guys discern the work you do um, from, um, I guess, the traditional trend fashion type of trend analysts that we have more of a predominance of here in South Africa and the work that you do. Can you just draw that, uh, you know, that line for me so that I understand it better? Yes, we're not, we're not predicting what's hot and what's not next season. What we are talking about in our research focuses on the shifts, the disruptors, the technologies, the innovations, and the, the shifts in the way consumers think and react on a more macro level. So that's what we look at. So we look at things like artificial intelligence and okay. how that's going to impact on not just businesses in the fashion industry, but also businesses in the banking, the retail, the farming sectors even. So we look at how a particular technology can disrupt many different businesses. Okay. And if we look back at digitization, that was another big trend that we had picked up on uh, about a decade ago. Okay. And we were talking about at that stage how the music industry was shifting from being a physical commodity that you'd buy in the terms of a CD or prior to that a record. You know how the, the music industry has evolved. Yes. And music at that stage was a commodity. And at that stage when we were looking at things, iTunes was a new thing. If we're going back to sort of 2005, 2006-ish, yes. the whole form of having digital music was very different to having a CD. Now, you could just buy one single song. Yes. Since then, that shift has shifted again into streaming, which is even less tangible. So now you're not even buying a particular track. You're just buying the right to license that music as a consumer in your own home. Yes. And that sort of shift to streaming mentality, we might have looked at a case study in the music industry, but that's applicable to so many other businesses. I see that what way you mean. of thinking. Okay. So that way of thinking applied to the banking industry suddenly becomes instead of paying like a monthly fee for your bank manager's services, how else would that work in that space? What could happen there? And these are the questions we look at. And we start looking for examples of, of new companies, new startup companies coming up in America and in Cape Town and all, all other tech hubs across the world to see what are they spending their money on? What are they researching to apply that same thinking, that same software as a service, streaming, subscription-based model to every different industry that we are working with? I see. Okay. And, and why is there space for trend analyst companies like yourselves? What has created that gap? 
Well, what's created that gap is companies that tend to be very good at what they do. They know their, their customers, they know their competitors, they know their industry, they know their supply chain. What they don't know is what businesses in an entirely different industry are doing, what technologies those businesses are adopting. Because the fact is, in today's age, your competitors are no longer within your own industry. They're Absolutely. probably something entirely different. Look yeah. at the Uber story. Uber was a tech startup. They had no expertise in transport, and yet they've entirely disrupted the taxi industry. So Apple, once again, coming back to the music thing, Apple was a computer and software development company, and now they're the world's biggest music reseller. So the music industry, if they weren't looking at what was happening in the desktop computing space, they get left behind there. So what we do is we bridge that gap. We basically see what's in your blind spot while you're busy running your business. We're looking at everything you're not looking at, and we're then able to fill you in to see what the new threats and new opportunities are. It's a different way of looking at your own business, and that's I see, what we can yeah. offer you. Okay, then let's, I guess, get into it um, and talk a little bit about what is actually happening and what you're seeing. Um, if I start broadly and say, um, what, what's emerging at the moment? Well, at the moment, some of the big things we're looking at would be artificial intelligence and chatbots in particular, and then drones and robotics. Those are probably two big trends that we think are impacting on a lot of different industries, and they're coming to almost saturation point in some industries, but they're only just beginning to be explored in others. Okay. And where where do you see them having their next big impact, specifically um, in our country? Well, at the moment, we believe the... Financial industry is probably next for big disruption. Retail we spoke about. Uh, so as I said, we looked, we did a big project on retail in 2011, but only now is the crisis really happening. So we believe the financial industry is pretty much in the same place that the retail industry was in okay. around about 2011. So in the next five to five or so years, the financial Industry, all those traditional players, your banking institutions, your um, insurers, you know, your your financial advisors, all those different role players in the financial industry are going to find themselves facing challenges that are just as big, possibly bigger than what happened in the retail industry. So we see there's parallels going on there. And and what is what is going to happen? You mentioned earlier. Uh, statistics um, around accountants specifically. You said, you know, yes. um, can you share that? Share that again. Okay, so coming back to robotics, automation, chatbots, and the like. Um, what we've one of the things we've been looking at at Flux is how automation is impacting on the workforce, okay. how it's affecting the jobs that we do, the careers that we have, and the, the livelihoods of, of people across different industries and across different countries. And for a long time, people thought that robotics and automation were going to erode the jobs of your blue-collar workers, your factory workers, your farm workers, your people that worked with just their hands and their skills. Okay. But what we see now is that the direction that artificial intelligence is going, it's actually going to have a bigger impact on your middle-class jobs. Um, recent research from um, the Harvard, Harvard Business Review uh, can points to the fact that accountants are now the single most easily automatable function out of all the jobs that they've looked at, something like Acc- nine accountants, accountants, and that's such a middle class job. And you've got so many, so many young people who are thinking they're going to go to university and they're going to study chartered accountancy because yeah. it's one of the best paying jobs right now and very prestigious but, as well. Exactly, very prestigious. But it turns out it's one of the most easy jobs to automate for the very same reason that it's one of the hardest jobs for a human to do ah, because it's a system and process based function. 
Anything, that any career, any function, any job that involves systems and processes can be done better, more efficiently with the robots, a chatbot, or some sort of automated software. Because all it is is if this happens, then that. If your job can be broken down into if this, then that's a formula, then your job is under threat. Okay. So, so that, that's why accountants, even lawyers, are going to find themselves in some sort of trouble when it comes to being competing with robots and automation. If you think about lawyers as well, lawyers spend a lot of time, a lot of money, learning a lot of facts, internalizing a lot of information. Yes. But of course, the computer knows more and can learn an infinite amounts of information and can recall that information and draw parallels between this textbook and that, that chapter of that law somewhere else. If you can just write a smart enough program and it's very hard to write those programs, but once they're up and running, you can see how they can be more efficient at, at synthesizing and applying data than a human ever could be. There is a chatbot that was built in the UK. I think it was last year that is a lawyer chatbot. Yes. It was originally designed to help people get out of parking tickets. So some guy was tired of paying for his parking fines, and he wrote this little bot to say, if I get a parking fine for doing this, this is what I can do to minimize it or get out of it. So he basically just put all the law on that particular subject into a database, and the chatbot gives it to you instantaneously. You don't have to pay your lawyer's fees. Of course, the lawyers are not so happy about this, but it's what customers want. And you can see how that sort of technology is very much the same as what Uber did with the taxi industry. It's giving customers what they want. It's cutting out the middleman. It's taking the consumer closer to the information or the service that they're actually buying at the end of the day, Mm. which in the case of the lawyer is getting out of a ticket. In the case of Uber, it's getting from point A to point B. Absolutely. And so just going back then to the financial services um, um, scenario, so you see that there's going to be significant disruption coming into that space in South Africa? In South Africa and across the world. Interestingly, I do believe that Africa and South Africa in particular is at an advantage to the first world in terms of the banking disruption for the simple fact that some of statistics, depending on who you listen to, they all sort of average out to around 80% of Africa's adult population is still not banked in the formal sector. Okay. This means we are at a unique opportunity where we can leapfrog the first world by developing, by taking on board all these new technologies that are set to disrupt From the, the global the global financial industry from the outset. So we could, if we play our cards right, leapfrog over those challenges and actually find ourselves in a much stronger position as a continent. If you just look at what happened with mobile banking, a whole M-Pesa story that came out of Kenya, that was a global first and that came out of Africa and was a leapfrog technology developed out of need. So because people were unbanked and have formal banking accounts, the adoption of that platform was huge. Um, you know, more than 50% of Kenya's GDP moves through the M-Pesa app yeah. every day. So yeah. that's, that's huge. Absolutely. And that sort of technology can place Africa at an advantage. But when you start thinking of things like that, that's game-changing technology. Those people didn't need a bank account. They didn't need a banker, a private banker. They just needed a cell phone Absolutely. to transact. So what we see at Flux is going to happen in the financial industry. They're not going to have a single Uber moment like the taxi industry did with Uber or the B&B industry did with Airbnb. With the financial industry, it's more complicated. We're going to see a fragmentation of those traditional finance functions. Okay. And the reason for that is the financial industry as it, as it stands – finds itself tends to think that it's invincible because it is so wrapped up in red tape and legislation. If you've ever tried to move money offshore, you'll know, Absolutely. you know, that the reserve bank and governments and currencies have such 
fixed processes and red tape in place, it's very difficult for some startup in some garage in San Francisco to say, oh, I'm going to take on Barclays Bank. So I'm just going to compete with them and just completely disrupt their business. Mm. So banks think, oh, no, it's not going to happen to us like it happened to retail or music or the media industry. But when you take a step back and you look at all the individual functions that a financial services industry performs, virtually every one of those functions can be replaced by better, cheaper, less middleman intensive technologies. Hence the fragmentation. Hence the fragmentation. So what we're seeing is startups going after not the entire bank, but after one function. So Warren Buffett, you know, the world's greatest investor, as everyone says, has recently quite famously invested in a company called Lemonade, which is going after the UK's notoriously overpriced insurance market. So they're just going after that one function and they're just providing essential low-cost insurance. That's it. That's it. That's all they do. Then you've got technologies like blockchain and Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin itself is a questionable investment, but it is a phenomenal means of transaction. It's a way to get your money from me to you, wherever I am in the world. Okay. Incredibly fast, incredibly securely, much cheaper than your bank could ever do. Like I've tried to move money offshore to to pay for a course in the UK. It took my bank almost three weeks to move that cash across the border. Bitcoin could have done that in 15 minutes. Okay. So now you can see how Bitcoin isn't just a, a nerdy investment platform for your, your preppers who are scared about, you know, who are scared of privacy or trying to move illicit drug money across borders. Yeah. In fact, it's a competitor to the forex industry. It's a competitor to your bank and how to convert your cash from South Africa to Europe. So if you start looking at that, those sort of technologies in a different way, you can see how various aspects of the financial industry are under threat. Yes. Coming back to what you were speaking about accountants and the chatbots with the lawyers. Yes. Your financial advisor can be replaced with a chatbot. There are already several chatbots in existence that plug into Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp or WeChat or whatever your preferred messenger app service is okay. and will offer you financial advice. If you go onto the Flux Trends website, we've actually got some interesting little videos we've pulled off YouTube as to how powerful these financial advisor chatbots are. And up against a human? Oh, instantaneously. You can you can tell the chatbot, you simply text to your chatbot saying, how much money do I have in my bank account? It'll tell you exactly down to the rands and cents. You can say, oh, I would like to invest, say, 500 rand. The bot will instantaneously give you a, a suggestion. It already has all your data. It knows your, your risk profile and says, oh, why don't you do this? If you just click yes, that money is instantaneously invested into the suggested fund. So this is taking... Robo-advisors to a whole different level. Absolutely. It just replaces your banker. You don't have to go into your bank. It replaces your financial advisor. All those middlemen in the financial industry should really be worried. Yeah. So now you can uh, see how that applies to a variety of situations. Absolutely. How's the industry responding to this? Are they listening to you and saying, it's all good and well. I've heard all these buzzwords before. Thank you very much. That was interesting. Or have you seen organizations that are responding to this head on and really preparing themselves? 
We've seen a bit of both. Um, what concerns us at Flux, if I was in their shoes, I'd be a bit worried about the fact that it's not like they're ignoring the technology, but they're focusing on the technology rather than the underlying issues and the reasons why those technologies are making the bank vulnerable to startup competitors. Okay. So it's not um, about the tech. In it's, not, it's not even about the tech. It's not about the shiny gadget. It's about the essence of your business. If your business relies on adding a markup, a fat margin, and being a middleman, yes. getting in the way of the customer and what they actually want to do or to achieve. Yes. If you're being too greedy with your margins, that's where your startups are going after you. Okay. Like take Uber again. If you try and get from the car train to your house using Uber versus using a black cab taxi here in South Africa, you'll find the black cab taxi can charge you maybe 50% more than the Uber. Okay. And this is where the bankers should be concerned. If your business is taking more margin – then it needs to, your margin is your competitor's opportunity at the end of the day. Yeah. And as long as there are fat margins, there's going to be small tech startups going after every one of those aspects of the bank's function that has a fat margin built into it. Mm. But but then um, just so that I, we get the, the view, are South African companies responding? Yes, South African companies are responding. Some of the ones you've spoken to are seeing what's going on in the world. Um, we've also started seeing a really big banks and banking industries like Barclays, for example, investing into tech startups. What okay. we're seeing is instead of internalizing inno innovation into their own businesses, they're now starting to see the value of investing in startups, almost like keep your keep your enemies closer yes. than your friends. So you're sort of buying up the, the, the people that look interesting. Yes. The challenge we see with that is that you can't really take an innovative startup and just place it into a very bureaucratic Absolutely. legacy company. It's yes. like oil and water. Absolutely. There's going to be conflict. And you're, if you're innovation department is not intrinsically built within the core of your business if your executive team haven't bought into that idea you'll have a great innovation department coming up with wonderful innovations but they by the time they get to market they're going to be stale mm. someone they, else they can't external, the problem. yes some exactly and some some startup that's not tied to your bureaucracy can do whatever your internal innovation or bought in innovation department can do just as fast and get it to market through the channels we have available now, quicker than you can. Mm. So basically, we see the financial industry as being its own worst enemy, <laughs> unlike unlike what happened in retail, where there really was an external threat. It's just a case of you need to be able to move faster within yourself. And I mean, this is you know by and large for for us, it's it's you know we touch the financial industry every single day almost. Um, do you feel that the innovation will come from within the industry or, or from external to the industry based on your observations and your research? Um, we're definitely seeing it's going to come from external parties to the industry. Honestly. We're going to see these little, these little tax at different, different profit and revenue streams coming from all over the world. And the thing with the financial industry is it is not just the domestic industry. It is global. It's a global so industry. So a competitor yes. in Kenya with your MPESA story again can disrupt banking in America. Sure. Uh, in, you know, it's, yes. it's not like you can't even be looking at your geographic location. Not only do you not want to look only at your own industry, you can't just look at your own economy either. Yes. So it, it is, it's homogenous. And looking at Bitcoin again is such a, such a game changing idea, not because of the Bitcoins itself, but about that blockchain technology and how it facilitates global trade without the need for currencies. It's a really big idea. Yeah. And that sort of technology can be applied to so many different aspects of the financial industry, everything from property records. Like why must you pay lawyers tens of thousands of rands every time you want to buy a property just to push some paper around? Whereas a blockchain ledger could contain all that 
information in a more secure function Absolutely. and just make that process so much faster, so much cheaper. So what we're looking at now is, is startup companies and entrepreneurs coming up with ideas of how to take that, the technology that already exists and apply it in different ways to different aspects mm. of the industry. But do you, do you not believe that the legislation will, you know, even if you fragment, um, you know, the, the, the different functions within a particular industry, you know, something like property ownership, which is really at the heart mm. of most economies, um, Things like you know reserve bank uh, tariffs, uh, tax authorities exactly. are really at the, at the. Do you not believe that those will stifle the change? You know because it's not necessarily driven by the end users. You almost have to interact with the institution to get to get the result. What have you seen even in other parts of the world from that perspective? That's an interesting one, and that's one of the reasons why we've we've to our experience financial institutions have not necessarily moved as fast as they could have to prevent these sort of holes from becoming big gaping holes yes. in their in their profit streams. Um, what we've seen with with legislation, not just in the financial industry but across everything, is that legislation tends to lag the technology. So look at what happened with Uber. Like Uber is essentially functioning illegally here in South Africa, yes. if, you, if you actually follow the story in the media. Yes. But the point is the legislation didn't have – there was no legislation for that particular business model. So legislation is now having to catch up. And by the time it catches up, consumers are already used to the new model. So the old existing industries are going to have to shift to do that. As a consumer, are you prepared to go back to a pre-Uber world? Are you prepared to play with the, the black cabs? Mm. Rules after you've experienced the alternative. Same with Airbnb in New York and, and your rent control laws. Essentially, it also operates without a license. And only now, five, ten years down the line, is legislation coming to catch up. So that's the one reason why legislation is a challenge, but it's not something that's going to stop the disruption from taking place. Bitcoin itself is at the moment not regulated by the Reserve Bank here in South Africa. They've had, they've issued white papers saying they're looking at it. But it's already been around mm. for, for decades. Yeah. So, you know, you know, the, the governments really can't anticipate change. Governments are legislative and executive yeah. institutions. They're not innovators. They're not a think tank. So you can't expect the legislation to hold back a business model that hasn't been done before. I see. And then if you look across at what's happening in the leading tech spaces in the world, your China and your, your Americas, what we're seeing is quite interesting. Com- Countries know, just like companies, growth is essential in terms if you want to increase or maintain living standards for your population. Economic growth. Economic growth. And these governments now are seeing that entrepreneurship and startup companies in the tech space in particular have the ability to really pour billions and billions of dollars or rands or yen or whatever your currency is into the economies. Yes. And they're starting to loosen those controls. In China's interesting case study, because essentially it's still a communist state, and yet they've invested in tech startups. They're calling them the dragons of China as yes. opposed to the unicorns of Silicon Valley. And they're basically giving these entrepreneurs the license to go crazy and build businesses with the hope that some of them fly and bring a lot of cash back into the Chinese economy. They're kind of betting randomly on the next Alibaba, the next big fish. Yes. So you're seeing them sort of bending their communist rules to allow these entrepreneurs to flourish. In America, we've seen even more interesting things going on. We've seen startups that are literally attacking uh, red tape and legislation in the financial space. There's Directly. A company, there's a company called Umbrella Hunter. Okay. That basically 
fits together almost like the Tinder of startups in the fintech space. Yeah. It matches startups wanting to operate in the financial space that don't have a license because licenses are obviously financial services boards. Licenses are expensive and complicated to obtain. They match them with brokerages or banks that have a license that would be prepared to partner with them. So they basically, it's basically like a little Tinder app that says, oh, I want to start a payment system. I don't have a license. And it says, oh, this broker over here has a license and he's keen to let you use it for a small percentage of your business. Interesting. So it just matches them up. And these companies are able to start competing with big financial industries within weeks of getting started, which is huge. Even more interesting, we've seen the American government issuing now special financial services licenses for tech startups. And they are able to get these licenses cheaper and faster than they would have to if they were a traditional financial business. The reason the government's doing this in America is because they want the money to stay within the country. They don't want them to go off and work in Ireland or work in some Cayman Islands type of place where they'd be able to get up and running without American bureaucracy. So we've seen governments finally saying, oh, well, we don't even want to. Instead of changing the law, we're just going to turn a blind eye and let you do it. And so, and and to what extent then does Flux engage the government here? We're not really working in the in the in the public space at the moment. Okay. We're really very much private sector, so we work with with uh, big businesses. Some of those businesses do have, you know, arms and ears that relate to government. Yes, but that's not something we currently do. We're quite a small little outfit. We yeah. don't exactly have lobby power. <laughs> okay, so yeah. even if it wasn't Flux, I mean, are there organizations doing similar work, to your knowledge, of course, similar work to what you're doing, that are really um, advising and driving government to understand what's happening globally from this perspective? Because I, I would assume there's obviously a specific corporate perspective, but I'm talking about this perspective that you offer as a trend and an analyst, an analyst organization? Not to my awareness. I think business leadership South Africa is about as close as it gets. And that's very much from your sort of fortune 500 top 40 type business perspective. So yeah. I don't think there's people that look at the world in quite the same way we do. Yes. We are a little bit left to feel. And because we're talking about things that will impact on you in a few years down the line, most governments don't have the, the luxury of doing that. Most governments are only in office for five years at so a time. So they're dealing with problems So they're now. dealing with today's problems. They're not dealing with tomorrow's problems. I mean, we've seen this with climate change across the globe and the Paris Agreement that's taken 10 years to get to a place that people sign it and it's already outdated. Yeah. So, you know, governments aren't necessarily equipped to deal with these things. But uh, from our perspective, it's it's everyday citizens and businesses that change the world anyway. Yeah. Governments are just there to serve us. Absolutely. So focus <laughs> we on those people. shouldn't be serving people. them. Yeah. So let's let's focus on the people that are actually going to build the features of tomorrow. Yeah. And then on the on the government topic, you mentioned something interesting to me um, around this universal basic grant. Oh, that, yes. That that's become quite a hot topic, and and how. Basically, in the, with the advent of automation, of um, um, you know, um, uh, robots and robotics taking over a lot of the work that people do, that um, there's a view that well, perhaps governments should just give a grant to all us humans, and we live our lives, and then um, we can basically afford the basics that we need, and then the robots do all the work. In a nutshell, that that's UBI in a nutshell. Yes. So talk talk to talk to me about talk to me about that. Yes, the universal basic income is an idea that actually Martin Luther King first came up with. It, well, he mentioned it in one of his one of his famous speeches, and it's about the fact that humans should be about more than just earning a salary, working nine to five, going home, sitting in the traffic, and repeating until you retire. Yes, that 
life should be about more than that. And the idea is that a universal grant, not just given to the sick or the elderly or the unemployed, but actually to every citizen, would enable humans to dedicate their lives to work of value, to writing a book, to exploring art, poetry, some other form of scientific endeavor or self-actualization trend analysis <laughs> although what what would be trending in a post-business world and the idea is this is very much a utopian ideal it sounds kind of ridiculous if you think about it you know yes. it's like a marxist utopia it's not really going to be practical in everyday life but when we think about the fact that research is showing that 40 to 50 percent of middle class jobs white-collar jobs are going to not exist in 10 to 20 years. People that are pessimistic about employment opportunities are starting to become more optimistic about this universal basic grant. Okay. idea is a way to keep populations from falling into disrest and social tensions as inequality rises and all of those sort of things to set almost as a means of social control, which also has pros and cons, depending on how you look at it. Mm. But at its core, the universal basic income would be funded by taxes on robot owners or people that employ of artificial intelligence, okay. or sort of people that own the means of production or without workers in this sort of utopian ideal. And that money would then be redistributed to the human inhabitants of the country, of the world, and we could all just sit around enjoying life. It sounds really great. I'm not sure how to work in practice. Hmm. But the point is, it's been taken very seriously. People like Elon Musk, our famous South African export and head of Tesla over in the US, yeah. is a famous um, supporter of this idea. And across the world, we started to see surveys, referendums, and even trials going on on universal basic incomes. And they've had some interesting mixed sort of results. Switzerland, I think it was two years ago now, or towards the beginning of 2016, had a referendum where they actually asked the population if they wanted to get a UBI. Okay. It was only narrowly rejected. So almost 50% of the population wanted it. In Finland, where they're sitting with a 22% youth unemployment rate, um, surveys show that four out of five Finns would be in support of a universal basic income. Canada's done trials is a what they're calling the biggest social experiment in human history is going on in Kenya at the moment, okay. where they've given a UBI grant to a particular tribe in a particular region. I, don't, I can't remember the exact details right now, but it's worth looking up. And that's going to go on for a number of years. It's been run by university, and they're monitoring to see what social goods and what social ills will come from this experiment. Because detractors of the idea are saying if you're getting a grant – People are going to work less hard. They're going to live. I see, they're uh, going to just become like a drain on the society. But proponents are saying, no, that's not actually the case. When people get the grant, they don't have to worry about working for basic necessities, but they actually become more valuable contributing members of society because they start developing new ideas and new science, new sciences, new arts, new literary projects. So we'll wait with anticipation to oh, okay. see how this trial turns out. So there's a trial within. It's happening right now. Right now. Yes, in Kenya. Wow, fantastic. In a rural area. So in a community that was pretty much destitute. So they're trying to use it as a means to. Yeah, to see how it happened. And so how would this translate into a South African context? I mean, we've got um, upwards of 40% unemployment. Um, we're not necessarily the drivers of technology or even in this utopian mm. world, we wouldn't necessarily under the current conditions, be the owners of this means of production. Yes. How do you perceive this could translate for us? Well, I don't think it's exactly something that would be practical here in South Africa at the moment. But then again, 
as you say, like around 40% of people in actuality are unemployed. Those people are mm. living off social grants. Yeah. So you're basically saying they're really getting a UBI. It's just not really a living basic income. It's just a basic income. Yes. So would it really be that different to increase that by another couple of thousand rand a month per person, you know, to actually give people getting a grant, not just enough money to survive, but actually enough money to have a nice life. It's very much can be used as a means of social control to, to reduce the amount of protests that you'd be seeing in the, in, in the streets because if people have money to eat, to eat food and to live in decent housing, then they're less likely to be disruptive of other things. So it could mm. actually be a cost saving initiative if you think about it from a different way. Yeah. And this is where the intellectuals and the think tanks are going. They're saying, how can this be funded realistically? So obviously if you're an oil rich Saudi Arabia that already gives your population, you know, free money every Christmas, you know, from the oil bonuses, that's great. What's the difference? Yes. For for third world countries it is of course a more challenging concept to to get our heads around. So we're far from it right now, but it is something to to possibly consider to work towards, yeah. depending on on whether you for it or against it. Absolutely. And um, now, latching onto that, you mentioned Elon Musk, and um, he's he's obviously been very vocal. And it's not just recently; I think for some time now, he's been very vocal about his concerns around artificial intelligence. Yes. Uh, specifically, the moral and ethical considerations. Um, of late, the discussion is around you know him versus Mark Zuckerberg. But I know um, quite a few years ago, he had some words as well with the Google um, um, founder. Um, your views on that um, and what what are the trends that are emerging around this conversation or this debate that's going on? What are you seeing? Well, he, he's absolutely correct to be concerned. If you, if you dig a little bit into the research of what's going on in artificial intelligence, um, at the moment there's no computer. All the computers in the world aren't even smarter than one individual human being. They might be smarter at you at chess and smarter at me at reading books fast or and better than this person at, you know, perfectly replicating a particular Van Gogh painting, but they're not holistically as smart as any one individual. So all the computers in the world currently wouldn't equate to one human. Basically. Yes, because they couldn't do everything we do. Because remember, we've got, we've got, um, Sort of conscious and unconscious intelligence, like our bodies run themselves. You know, that's, that's a form of intelligence. The way that I, while I'm talking, I can read my hands and I don't have to think about it. That's another sort of form of intelligence. It's the, our memories and all those different components come together. But, um, what the research says is very much like Moore's law with exponential sort of development and technology builds upon itself. They say by the time that a computer is a hundred percent as smart as one individual human, by midnight that same night, that computer will be smarter than the all humans put together. Who knows what could happen? Yeah, okay. So effectively then, um, the debate as you see it, um, is it a case of one party <coughs> saying... Um, so we were talking about um, Moore's Law and robots really, the, the rate at which they'll become more intelligent obviously becomes exponential. And that creates... Um, I guess, threats or challenges or concerns for us as humans. I want to make it a bit more practical. So earlier on, we spoke about um, lawyers and accountants that could be replaced because they, 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 dis- you know, they discern and give input based on a lot of information and content. Um, I've had on the show doctors, like an orthopedic surgeons, etc. And their world is somewhat different because the considerations that they need to make are not just about the information or the data that they have. So an example would be if there's uh, a mother who's having a 
troubled um, uh, uh, pregnancy and is giving birth, who do you save? You know, do you save the mother or the baby, as an example? Yeah. Um, and so I want to talk about it from a, I guess, taking stock of what Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg are saying. Um, in terms of what you're seeing in the trend space, what's happening with organizations in terms of considering how some of these decisions get made in an automated world where robots and human beings, you can't even discern who's who? Yes, well, we haven't seen too much of that yet because this is still very much something that's new and that's your ev- ev- everyday business hasn't really considered. I'm pretty much sure that you haven't worked with any businesses that have incorporated AI as part of their employees. Yeah. But what we have started to pick up is that new jobs being recruited for what they're calling a robot trainers. So they're hiring people from the customer service industry to actually program and train robots how to think. We've actually picked this up in the travel industry space, okay. which is one of the industries that was most what what was at the forefront of being disrupted by technology. You know, like your travel agent is really a job that doesn't really happen anymore. Someone that would, you know, find flights for you by calling on the phone. You know, now you can go look at at like cheapflights.coza and see whichever flights are cheapest. So they were some of the first industries impacted with this. And they're finding that the the robots that are doing bookings for people are not necessarily giving humans the sort of tactile and sensitive experience that they want. Okay. And in order to retain their customers, even though they're using AI backends to book your holiday for you, they're bringing in humans that are very good at customer service to sit and program these robots. These are not tech-based people. These are just everyday people that are really good with humans. Okay. And the robot basically monitors what they do. And looks and learns, so sort of by adaptive learning. So these are sort of roles. Explain that to me. What would that look like? So I'd be sitting um, at a desk, and and what's happening? There's things plugged into me. (laughs) No, not at all. This is this is like basically like a manual chatbot versus a human chatbot. That's how you could see it working. Okay. So uh, I'm sure you've been to a website where a little block comes up and says, "Hello, how can I help you?" Yes. It's it's that sort of technology, but on the back end. So the human robot. Trainer will then respond to that query text based, you know, by typing in and saying, doing it nicely, the way the human wants to be related to. Yes. As opposed to just, what do you want? Which is pretty much how some of the robots were talking to people. And the robot would then learn from those text based interactions how to interact with humans. I see. So I it's see. really just all text based, but saying, oh, that word works there. It's almost like with your GPS, with the voice, you know, if you want to get a artificial voice, I'm sure if you had a early generation GPS system in your car, the voices were very robotic. I see. But the more that the the voice artist talks to the the computer to actually develop that electronic voice, the more darts it goes into it, the more human it sounds. And now if you're interacting with your GPS, you might quite like her. You know, you might even give her a name. She sounds quite nice. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's how the technology is getting smarter. And that's literally being trained by humans. So they're trying to, what, what's, the technology industry is trying to do is make our robots into nice people, not into sociopaths. <laughs> but of course, we don't know how that's going to progress at that point when they become so much smarter than all of humanity put together. You know, then that's too late to pull the plug at that point. Yeah, I feel, yeah, absolutely. So, so yes, people are trying to look at the, the softer side of robotics. And do we project it will happen in our lifetime? This, this superior intelligence coming from machines? Our lifetime being us, or is it something highly likely? Highly um, likely. When you've got when you're talking about what's happening at Google now, where one artificial intelligence program has developed a way to talk to another artificial intelligence program itself. in the Google stable, 
using a language that they develop themselves. That Goodness. humans don't know what they're saying to each other. So they basically developed a, a code, a, a version of code that only those two programs know. So we even now other. still trying to <laughs> decipher what they're saying to each other. I, I'm pretty sure they've sorted it out by now. I'll put it stopped. <laughs> you, don't want your, you don't want your robots talking to each other. But these are, these are software programs. They've just developed a way to communicate with each other without human intervention. So, you know, we're really at a point where tech is probably smarter than we understand it to be. And how that evolves is definitely something to, that should be concerning to us that we are taking steps to make sure that this doesn't become a Frankenstein's monster that we can't contain. Absolutely. Especially when you've got p- smart men like Elon Musk saying, hey, guys, you should, you should be, be worried about you this. Be watching yeah, this. There's, there's, a, there's a reason why he's saying <laughs> yes. that. Yeah. And, and I guess it's going to bring to us a new wave of legislation, a new wave of thinking about how do we, um, you know, how do we interact as people? You know, because it I mean, our sense. systems currently have been based on human interactions largely, or humans interacting with a vehicle. You know, how do you drive a car? You stop, you go, etc. So we're going to probably need a new set of laws for how, you know, how do you program these machines, what they can and can't do, etc. Yes, and who's responsible if a machine makes who's a bad decision? Exactly. Is it the is it the company that built the robot? Is it really their fault? Is it an individual human's fault? How does this play out? And and that comes back to legislation tends to lag the technology. I see what so you're saying. So by the time we're asking these questions, it's going to be probably too late because we're not very good at doing that as humans. We we're very keen to play with fire, even though we know it's going to burn us. And at the <laughs> moment, I guess it's in the hands of software developers, the people writing the code. They're the yes. ones kind of saying, okay, well, I can protect it in this way but i mean it might not be comprehensive based on other factors that could come into play and sometimes they don't even know what they're developing or how how that can evolve like in the case of the the google software programs that can talk to each other some guy developed this some other guy developed that and the next thing you know when they interact they they, their learning is is quite fast and that's when you got elon musk again coming back and saying he believes the only way that humans will be able to compete with or um, even function in a world where our our software and our technology is so smart as to actually have chips implanted in our brains so we all become cyborgs. Cyborgs, yes, which is terrifying for its own reasons. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me about yourself then. I mean, you spend a lot of time um, looking at trains, looking at what's coming, you know, five minutes ahead of, of the curve, as you put it. Um, how do you personally exist in that world? Well, how did I come to be here? No, no. How do you func- you know? How do you perceive that world? I mean, there's obviously the way you look at it professionally, but yes. what is your perspective on on this world? Looking at it as someone who works, you know, five minutes ahead of the curve. Well, I think it's a great time to be someone that looks five minutes ahead of the curve because there's so many different futures. If you follow science fiction at all, you know, they say like anything that happens today creates a different possibility, you know, that it fractures. So at the moment, there's so much change going on. There's always something to be interested in. And it really just becomes such a rabbit hole. It depends on what thread you pull. You can really unravel a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. And um, But it's a great time to be alive. It's a great time to be interested in interesting things because there's so many things that you can that you can latch onto, and it's it's something that not enough people are doing, looking at the world in a five minutes ahead point of view. Because most of us are so busy trying to you know make profit today for our company, yes. we don't have the luxury of being able to look at things from an outside perspective. And I'm basically a professional outsider, <laughs> looking at yes. looking looking at everything and cultural cultural dimensions. And we've spoken a lot about technology, but um, you know, amongst your colleagues, what are you seeing in terms of cultural shifts? 
Cultural shifts. Well, um, one of my colleagues, Kumo, has been following the, the Generation M trend, as she puts it. And that's okay. about the rise of the Muslim generation. She generation might be someone M, yeah. to get, to get onto your show to talk about those sort of cultural shifts in greater detail, but about how, how the rise of the, the Muslim youth is impacting on the global millennial generation Interesting. and how, how the, the rise of the Muslim dollar is almost very much like the pink rand that we spoke about about five years ago, like yes. the rise of, rise of of the, the LGBT community and how powerful they became in yes, everyday as a, world. As a consumer and you can see that how we're five years down the line and you're seeing how brands have embraced the LGBT community. You're looking at brands like Skittles going for taking their packaging to pure white to celebrate Pride Month in the US. Yes. Ben and Jerry's that refuse to serve you two scoops of the same type of ice cream in their stores in Australia until LGBT marriage is legalized there and how those sort of, how those sort of cultural shifts impact on businesses and on laws and on legislation. And we're seeing the whole, the young Muslim generation being that next wave of change that's going to be impacting on businesses. I mean, we've seen um, a young Muslim girl who posed in Playboy, but she was wearing all of her clothes and her hijab and how that sort of shift is and that's powerful, and how that sort of shift is impacting on on culture is going to be one to watch because that's only we just at the beginning of that curve now. Mm. And and the 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 junction now with cultural shifts and, and shifts in technology is that creating some interesting dynamics as well? Of of course, you know, because some people are terrified of technology. I did an interview on one of the other South African radio stations a while back, and I was talking about new ways to pay in the financial space and about how biometrics and MasterCards come up with their biometric card, where if you put you, you have to put your thumb onto the card to verify your identity rather than signing for your card. And they launched that here, I think it was around about April. And now we're sort of starting to see technology like tech tattoos, where you actually get a chip circuit tattooed onto your arm. It's a temporary tattoo. Okay. And that, of course, got people in the Christian communities all riled up because they're talking about, oh, it's the mark of the beast and what's going to happen there. And that whole intersection of technology into our physical bodily spaces is very threatening to certain groups, cultures, and and ideologies. So that's going to be a really interesting one to watch how this all falls out. So there's a lot happening from very many angles, I guess. Exactly. The pace of change really is accelerating. Like the world we live in today is very different to the world it was five years ago. But if your great grandparents were alive, they would not be able to even recognize what we're doing now. Absolutely. We basically live in two dimensions. We live in the online dimension and in the physical world. And the blurring of those two boundaries is something that's only really something that's happened in our lifetime. And that's only going to increase. Far more significantly. Um, so speaking about generations then, and you mentioned your great grandparents, you're a mother and you've got a two year old daughter you mentioned to me. That's right. Um, so how do you prepare her given that you live five minutes ahead of the curve? (laughs) How do you prepare her for, for this next dimension that, that will, that will manifest in her lifetime? Well, the point is no one can predict the future. We don't even pretend to do that at Flex. But what the biggest skill that you can equip yourself and your children with at this point in time is the ability to learn and to adapt. And that's something that our parents and grandparents and the sort of baby boomer and post-World War generations did not have. They were not taught how to be adaptable. They were taught how to train for a particular role, for a particular job, for a career. They were taught that life was set out in stages. You know, you went to school, you got a trade, either at university or a physical trade, you worked, you retired, and you lived off your pension. And that sort of linear 
life plan was what they were trained for and that's what they're comfortable with. And that's why your sort of baby boomer generation now in Trump's America and even here in South Africa mm. is so agitated. That's why you're seeing things like the Brexit movements and as people try and hang on to the sort of life that they've known. Yeah. And if you can train your children to not expect life to be as they expect it to be, they're really going to be set up to, to live a lot more successful life. So the biggest skill you can learn is change adaptability. Okay. And, and I guess, um, in the loss of jobs, whether they're blue collar jobs or accountants or lawyers, there'll always be a need to teach people the skills to survive in this new world, whether it's teaching exactly. them to operate and maintain robots or teaching them to understand shifts in cultural dynamics, exactly. um, how to learn, how to, I guess, unlearn as well, things that were done previously. So there'll, there'll, be, there'll be new opportunities that present themselves, I guess. Is that something they that will. we can say categorically? Yes, just to come back to the universal basic income concept, I know a lot of people are, are suggesting it's the only way that humanity is going to survive, you know, give us free money and otherwise we're all going to starve to death. I don't believe that. I'm much more optimistic in human beings. Okay. I mean, if you were to talk to your great-grandmother again, you know, she wouldn't have even heard of any of the jobs we're doing. I mean, she wouldn't have known that you could be a streaming radio you know, yeah. show host. Yeah. She'd be like, what is that? Yeah. That job didn't exist. Yeah. And as fast as jobs disappear, new ones will appear. And there'll be new functions that we haven't even thought of yet. I mean, some ones that are popping up now are like drone pilots. Which basically means you get paid to use a remote control and fly a gadget through the sky. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And that didn't exist. And yet this, now it's a booming industry in Cape Town here mm. in South Africa. And it's a premium job as well. Exactly. It commands a lot of, they get charged big fees for that. Yeah. Exactly. And probably in five years time, that job will be redundant because that will be done by a computer. Absolutely. But there'll be something else. And that's, that's human nature. Humans survive. And even if what it means is robots do everything that we know as being a human function right now and we go back to just making art and selling it to each other. That's actually a viable opportunity. Look at the creative culture. Look at the neighbor goods community here in Joburg and Cape Town. Yes, That's yes. a bunch of like millennial hipsters who come from like pretty stable financial backgrounds that literally just make a craft and sell it to each other. You know, <laughs> like a, robots will have no part of that conversation. They're, they not don't, they're not interested and we're not interested in having them in that space. Yeah. And we're seeing that shift in Italy. We see young professionals quitting their jobs and going back to becoming subsistence farmers which is what their great-grandparents did exactly the opposite of, leaving their subsistence farms and going to work in the city. So it's almost like maybe it's not universal basic income. Maybe it's not just a grant. Maybe it's something deeper than that. Maybe humans go back to being humans. Interesting. And we leave robots to keep the lights on. (laughs) So, Bronwyn, um, a question that I ask all the guests that join us on the show, um, two questions, um, very simple questions. The first one being, your vision for South Africa and for the African content, continent. Okay, well, from my perspective, I would like to see Africa take its place as a leader in some segment rather than just being a follower. I think we've got so much potential here. And I spoke about today uh, the leapfrog potential that Africa has to see all of any disadvantages we may have as actually being an opportunity to build something from the ground up rather than just copycatting industries that have been built somewhere else in the world. I think that we've got a huge potential if we can just have the confidence in ourselves to do things our way. Absolutely. So really leveraging what look like weaknesses, but actually their potential um, strengths for us. Yes. And then um, disruption, you know, the show is called Disrupt and we try to discern and to elaborate on this topic. How do you define disruption? 
Disruption is anything that makes you feel uncomfortable. So if something makes you try and hang on to what you've got, that's disruption. Like if you look at what's happening in Trump's America with yes. the white supremacists, yes. they're trying to hang on to something because change is uncomfortable, and that's what disruption is. So disruption is anything that makes you uncomfortable, makes you feel like you want to hang on to the status quo. Yes, and that's when you know you've got to let go, <laughs> or you're going to, or you're going to be trampled. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I absolutely love it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you once again, Bronwyn. On that note, thank you so much, Bronwyn. It's been, I think, a very, very insightful conversation. Um, I always enjoy talking about things that are emerging, but in a very practical way, because then it, it enables us to, I guess, have a position in that space. You know, we can actually do something about it or not if we choose. Um, so really, thank you for joining us, and we look forward to having you back on the show again. Uh, thank you to everybody who's tuned in to listen to the conversation on Disruptive Employment Lapo. Thank you to our sponsors again, T-Systems, for making the platform possible. And we look forward to you joining us uh, for another episode of Disruptive Employment. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is CliffCentral.com.